It's Friday, February 26th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wait, it's Friday. Why is there an episode of Market Foolery? Well, as I said the other day, bonus episode this week. Joining me in studio, Jeff Fisher from Motley Fool Pro and Options, and David Gardner, co-founder of the Motley Fool, chief rule breaker, working on stock advisor rule breakers, and oh yeah, he also hosts the Rule Breaker Investing podcast every week. Thanks for being here, guys. Thank you, Chris. Hey, Jeff. Hey, David. <laughs> hey, Chris. Great hey, to Jeff. see you both. Thank you for responding to my invite. <laughs> <laughs> I like how you teed that up as though we just bumped into each other by the coffee machine. Hey, what are you doing Well, here? we didn't really have to walk many feet to come over That's to the true. studio to talk about what is, I think, a very memorable time in our lives. Uh, Definitely. It, certainly memorable. And uh, as I say from time to time uh, on Market Foolery, we, we don't talk about politics. That's not where we live here at The Motley Fool. Only every once in a great while does politics intercede with investing in a meaningful way to us. And yet, I think it's accurate to say that the person who is at the white-hot center of American politics right now is Donald Trump, which brings us to what I consider to be one of the great stories in Motley Fool history, and that is when the two of you met face-to-face with Donald Trump. Um, I, I got to do a little bit of setup before I hand this over to you guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're, for our, some of our listeners go way back to the beginning of the fool. Some of our listeners just joined us in the last year or so. So let me let me get us all in the wayback machine. Let's go back to the mid 1990s. Fool.com has just launched. Um, actually started on AOL in 1994. And David, you start running a real money portfolio called the Fool. Portfolio with fifty thousand dollars of your own money, and uh, revolutionary in a number of ways because, and it's hard, particularly for younger people. I've talked to younger people and talked about what investing was like in the eighties and nineties, and they look at me like I'm insane. But back then, the internet is really just getting started, and full service brokerages are basically charging whatever fees that they want. And so you come along, you launch the full portfolio, which announces trades ahead of time, something Wall Street was not doing at the time, comparing your results to the S&P 500, also not not commonly done, and including fees in the returns, definitely not done back in the day on Wall Street. And so, you're managing, you're, you're writing up different stock reports, investing in these stocks, sharing the results, and uh, over a couple of years, you change the name of the portfolio from the full portfolio to the rule breaker portfolio. And anyone familiar with your style of investing knows why you did that. Um, and then, April 30th, 1997, the rule breaker portfolio, which Jeff, you start helping David manage along the way, comes out with its latest recommendation. And it is not a buy, it is a short. And it is not just any short, it is a short of Trump Hotels and Casino Resorts, which was publicly traded at the time on the day for $8.50 a share. Stock, t- stock ticker T or DJT. That's right, which, for the three initials of the founder's name, Donald J. Trump. Not always a great buy indicator when someone says, you know what, you know what a great ticker would be? Well, he's My putting, initials. He's putting his name and his reputation <laughs> on the line. L- let's start with the short. Whose idea was it in the first place? That's I don't. I don't question. think that I remember necessarily. I know one thing. Jeff and I kind of co-developed an approach to shorting that we um, we were calling buzzard bait shorts. 
And, and we were I sc- think it conformed. I, uh, yeah, we were screening for companies with a lot of debt at high interest rates that resulted in very high interest payments that did not look sustainable, and Trump floated to the top of the list. Yeah, there are a couple more traits there in the buzzard bait short approach that we have that we still like. We just don't mm-hmm. short as much anymore at the fool. But you do some though, Jeff. Maybe you still do this. But we are short Caesars Entertainment right now in Pro, which is very much in the same vein as Trump okay, back in the day. Okay, good. So a couple more things we were looking for, Chris, is we were looking for stocks that had already fallen a ton under the assumption that they're gonna keep going. Right. So we were already I I'm gonna make this up. You can check the math, but Donald DJT, ticker symbol DJT, had already fallen a long way to get to eight and a half. And then the the other thing we're looking for are companies that are losing money. So they're not only do they have a ton of debt, but they're losing money. So you can't really see where they're going to be paying their debt off, and their stock is well done. We also loved that this business model literally shakes <laughs> the pockets clean of its customers if it does its job right. Yeah, I, and you're saying love in a in a sarcastic <laughs> sarcasm, of yes. course, being the wit of fools, as I'm sure we all know. Um, it's kind of a sad business. It's one yes. that traditionally, at least for services that I and I'm still doing what we did back in the day. We started picking stocks right out front of America on August fourth, nineteen ninety four, Chris. And I was going to say things really haven't changed that much. Right. Announcing our trades ahead of time. Here we are, twenty three years later. But L- let me just stop you for one second yeah. because back while you know at this point in time in full history. Um, and I mentioned this right before we started taping. Yes, that approach has not changed. And there has been greater transparency when it comes to investing over the last 20 years. But at the time, I was heading up the Motley Fool's media relations efforts. And I can tell you from multiple conversations I had with reporters and editors that some of them were flat out dumbfounded by this approach. And I can't count the number of times I was talking to a reporter. And they would look at the website and say, "This, you know." And so, what is this? What is this portfolio? I don't get it. How, how does this work? And I'm like, "Well, it's it." Uh, David announces the trades ahead. Of, well, why would he do that? Well, we actually believe that there should be greater transparency on Wall Street. And and uh, oh, okay, okay, okay. So 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 so, what is what's the catch? What's the catch? Like, do, do you, how do you make up the money? It's like. I, I I don't I don't know how to make you understand. I'm trying really hard. <laughs> we're we're literally laying all our cards on the table, especially when you announce a short to the public. This is just the general public, and they pile into the short, and then we get to short afterwards at a lower price still. So it was true of many buys too. We we recommended Starbucks in '97, I believe. Amazon right when it came public. Uh, Amgen very early. David, that was. Another yeah, one. so the stocks would because we it was a free site, so anybody could come and see what we were doing, and uh, and the stocks would trade up the next day, and we would buy a few days after that. But I think because I know everybody listening to this podcast knows that we're long term in our orientation, it doesn't really bother us that much if a stock pops or goes against us. Uh, it, often those are very temporary anyway, and who really remembers three years later? Uh, we do. <laughs> so, well, for this story, we remember about 16 and a half years later. Yeah. April 30th, 1997, you publicly announced the short of Trump Hotels and Casino Resorts. Let's fast forward two years, specifically August 3rd, 1999. David, you get to your desk. There's a voicemail message from Nicholas, is it Rebus? Ribus. Ribus. Nicholas Ribus, CEO of Trump Hotels and Casino Resorts. What did he say? He said um, he, he, uh, he, he was interested in uh, meeting with us. He said, uh, uh, Mr. Trump 
and he had, were aware of our short, and uh, we're very influential, and they'd like to have an opportunity just to talk. They could come down to Alexandria, or we could go up there and uh, discuss the short of Donald's company. And I would say, very smartly, you said, oh, no, 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 don't, don't come here. We want to come to you. I mean, the opportunity to, to go up to New York City, go to Trump Towers, and meet with the Donald in his office was, was tempting enough that we took it. So, September, you head up, the two of you. Dale Wetlofer, one of our, um, one of our early analysts at The Fool, um, and there was also there was someone else. There was an intern? Yeah, Charity. Charity was her name. Yeah, Charity. Probably um, still is her who name. Who was a college intern. And uh, I wanted, you know, it was an opportunity. We had 40 interns that summer. And so she was working closely with me and our service. So I wanted her to have that experience. What, what I didn't know was that Charity had not only never been to New York City, she had never been on an airplane. Wow. And so there we were on an airplane to New York City, landing and going directly to the 26th floor of Trump Towers to meet with Donald Trump. So, Charity, and I think you're down in North Carolina somewhere these days. You're, we're all 16 years older or so, but I hope you still remember that hour. <laughs> what do you remember, Jeff, about the flight up? Because I, if it were me, I think I would be a combination of excited and just slightly nervous. Well, to start right as we are kind of rolling down the runway, David leans over to Charity and says, you know, Charity, most airline accidents happen in the first 60 seconds <laughs> before takeoff. And Which is accurate. It's accurate. I'd forgotten that I said that to her, but I'm glad that you remember that, yeah, we, we teased David that he could have waited 60 seconds and then told her that. But we made it. And we landed in, in New York, obviously, and hopped into a taxi to Trump Tower and the funny thing was, a little aside, was the taxi driver said he had met Mr. Trump many times, and and I think Frank Sinatra, and all these other people. He had story after story that just made the world seem very small. So, to Charity, who had never been to New York before, it must have seemed, maybe took a little of the shine off, like, oh, well, it's New York. You, I'll see Tom Cruise around the corner, or something like that. But the flight up, we compared notes on what we had written about Trump the last couple of years. And David had developed a habit of <laughs> of calling Trump Tiny. That was his nickname Tiny. for Trump. We, we had we had <laughs> daily reports. <laughs> I mean, so it, you could come to our website and see a daily report of how our portfolio was doing each day. So we had a lot of ample opportunity over a couple of years <laughs> to talk about each of the dozen or so stocks that were in our portfolio. And we thought it was funny. Because I it think was it a, starts with me. <laughs> I thought it was funny. At that point, it was it was a penny stock. Well, it, it was it was more, when it gets below five. It was more that. Mr. Trump's reputation, as we understood it coming in through the 80s and 90s, was that he was fairly egotistical. And so we thought that it was funny that instead of calling him, you know, he's so big and everyone's always talking about how big Donald Trump is, we just start calling him tiny. <laughs> and because the company that he was running wasn't doing very well, as Jeff points out, it was getting smaller and smaller. It just it seemed like the right term at yeah, the, the time. Yeah, the market cap was shrinking. Yeah, yeah. So that was David's. You know, affectionate nickname for Donald. <laughs> I, I I will say I'm I'm not necessarily proud of that. I don't I don't I don't think I I don't think I leveled up the public discourse. You were in your 20s. I mean, we were having fun. taking chances. Yeah, yeah. wet being, behind the being ears. Being foolish. So you get there, you get up to the 26th floor. What was it like? What was his office like? And what was what what is the initial 60 seconds in the room with Donald Trump like? The first thing that I think about is that. Um, 
Nicholas Rivas met us right out front, and he said, Donald, we'd like to see you brought us right in. And Trump's office at the time was two very large rooms, so the equivalent of two conference rooms stacked together. Uh, and he has a massive desk at the back of, of one of those rooms. And I remember that there was a he had he had um, he had a framed thing of dollar bills on his on his on, on his desk, which was kind of a, f- a funny. So he had he had understandably a lot of people like him do this. A lot of pictures of himself with notaries um, up on the walls, and uh, and he was you know he graciously welcomed us and said hello in an affable way to Jeff and me and Dale and Charity. Exactly, they offered us a Coke, Coca Cola, or styrofoam a, cup, other beverage in a styrofoam cup. Uh, of course, it was a corner office, glass all around, and yeah, as David said, the one main wall was covered with magazine covers and photographs of, of Donald. And uh, one thing I couldn't help but notice as we walked into, the, the tower is very gilded, as you would expect. It's, it's not unlike Apprentice, if you've seen that show in the past. He really lives in that sort of gilded environment. And it seemed like the company hired, in large part, based on looks. <laughs> Like, and I'll just leave it at that. You're looking at the other employees <laughs> and thinking, "Wow, there's a lot of really good-looking people here." So, and David, you you uh, wrote up a report, and we'll we'll get to the that in a moment. But one of the things in, in when I was rereading that, you gave credit to Trump for inviting you up there in the first place. Like for what whatever else we're going to say about Donald Trump, um, there are plenty of people on Wall Street. Who see that someone has someone shorting my stock? Someone's taking shots at me. I'm just going to ignore them, for for whatever reason. And maybe it was 100% pure ego. Donald Trump said, "No, no, no. I'm gonna I'm gonna invite these people up here, try and talk them out of this." I do. I give I give credit to Trump along a number of different um, dimensions. Here's one of them, though. Chris, you're right. Um, that was a time where even public companies were not necessarily opening up their quarterly conference calls. To shareholders to listen to the CEO answer Wall Street questions and right the, the something we all take for granted today they're all taped replay you can watch them live Starbucks back in the day was not opening up its quarterly conference calls to be listened to which caused us to mount a write-in campaign from our radio show at the time and happy to say Starbucks listened and changed but that's that was the environment in in 1999 that we were working in and so the notion that the CEO of this company who's we're 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 short. His company invites us to come and and talk with him. I, I thought was pretty impressive. Ivanka Trump, who anyone who's following American politics, uh, Donald Trump's daughter, she's with him on the campaign trail. Um, a grown woman now. At the time, eighteen years old. Was was she really the one who flagged this for her dad? Because I can't imagine Donald Trump back in the nineties is clicking around the internet going to fool.com. That's what he told us, and David can probably retell exactly uh, how Donald shared this. Yeah, well, he said, uh, you know, uh, he said, uh, Ivanka reads what you guys write. <laughs> so, you know, we get these other nice things said about us on Wall Street, but then she only listens to you guys. <laughs> so she came to me and said, "Daddy, the fools say that you have a crummy company." <laughs> So that's why I had you in," he said. "You know what? I believe that. I mm-hmm. mean, we all have kids. It's you know, you you can leave. You can say, well, I'm leaving my work at my workplace.' But once one of your kids walks up to you and starts talking to you about your job, then it becomes real in a whole different dimension. Yeah, so he, he let off with saying, now, "Now you may wonder why I had you in. I give you credit. You guys are very influential. You can hear Trump saying this. this is straight from his lips. You guys are very influential. You know my daughter Ivanka, and it went from there." I'm assuming 
at some point after the pleasantries, after the would you like a beverage and please sit and be comfortable and telling how you're up there in the first place, at some point, Jeff, it has to get down to the business. And I, he's got to be talking to you guys about, look, this, this is how we're going to win. It did. If I, if I could summarize it, I would say Donald and Nicholas Ribas did 70 to 75% of the talking. When we would speak, they would politely listen, but I don't know that it would be contemplated much, what we said, except to respond back what they already believed to be true. Uh, Dale was especially pointed in his critiques of the company's financials, of the debt load, of the interest, which was easy to point out as a as a major Achilles heel. And they and Donald did admit some mistakes. He admitted mistakes right off the right off the bat. Uh, but he'd always come back around to his argument, as you would expect, that the company will be strong and we'll get through this and everything will be fine. And they had some arguments that were a little more emotional uh, in regards to the marina and the water view that they had and the properties they owned because at the time th- this was a business i you know if if you get in a time machine and you're bullish on this stock i'm assuming a lot of it has to do with atlantic city he's got the property in atlantic city which leads to the headline of your article the classic quote from trump which is maybe the 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 largest um, you know the largest brick in his bull case wall that's a terrible analogy but but basically like his big one of his big beliefs is because of where the property is located. I own the water. I own the water. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's what we taught. In fact, if you want to read our recounting, you just Google the phrase, I own the water, I'll tweet Trump. This, I'll tweet this out on the Market Fuller. It's a great Excellent. article David wrote in 99. Yep, it's a great, it's really fun. It was fun. just days after. But yeah, I mean, here here was what was at the heart of this, this short decision. So, Donald Trump, the private real estate man, had sold to Donald Trump's public company, uh, Trump Marina, and uh, so so wait, again, wait you as a public company shareholder are you're buying from the CEO from his private company uh, a property. You are borrowing a huge amount of money through your public company as a shareholder of this company. They have to rack up two billion dollars of debt about in order to make these kinds of purchases, and you can see who they're paying. Right, they're paying Trump's. Private real estate company, so they're basically borrowing a massive amount to overpay for a property that saddles the public company with an asset that it can't really ever pay for, and brings it to the teetering edge of bankruptcy. And that was that was our short. That was our that was our reasoning at the time. Um, he's remunerated his private company by selling for an unrealistic price uh, a property, and it was Trump Marina. It was the water. I mean, to cr- Trump's credit, um, he he really developed Atlantic City. It, I'm not sure it's worked out too great 20 years later, but at the time, he, he borrowed a huge amount of money to even make it possible to kind of renew and reinvigorate Atlantic City. His arch-rival at the time probably still is in some ways, although things have shifted some in his life, was Steve Wynn. And Steve Wynn was kind of the foil to Trump. Wynn had an admired company, Mirage Resorts. Trump's company at the time, uh, we were noting, was actually last on the list of America's most admired companies from one <laughs> significant business magazine survey. Um, so, so there was, a, and, and, and Wynn was starting to make incursions into Atlantic City, and that was extremely threatening to Trump. And so he really didn't like Steve Wynn. I, I bet he still really doesn't <laughs> like Steve Wynn. When the hour was up, 
what went through your mind? Did you did you think, oh God, we survived this? Because one of the things you touched on was on your way up there, David, you're thinking, ah, you know what, 20% chance something really bad happens. So when the hour is up, do you think to yourself, ah, oh, that was that went as well as I had hoped, that went better than I had hoped, I wish I had another hour, or are you thinking, God, get me out of here now? I think I thought thought it was an appropriate amount of time. We had an opportunity to talk some about about his business. We had that that memorable experience for us four. Maybe not for Donald. I don't know if he'll remember. He probably doesn't want to remember this because things for the company didn't end up too well. Uh, we we closed the short. It was my call after the meeting. I decided based on what he was saying. He was saying stuff like, "You guys don't know that debt that looks so." Um, devastating for my public company. We're going to be renegotiating that, getting a much better deal. You guys don't know that yet, but I like you guys, so I'm not inside information. But I'm telling you ahead of time, we're working at that, and so you guys need to know some stuff's coming. You probably want to close that short. And uh, and at the time, I felt like with the stock already having gone from eight and a half down to five, we had made more than forty percent of our money during a time when the S and P five hundred had gone up over sixty percent those couple of years. So it was a tremendous investment. So I felt comfortable declaring victory. And saying, let's see going forward. Since he's given us his word about this, and that this company is gonna gonna work out, despite him saying, you know, he'd made a lot of mistakes with the company, which he was the first to admit. Although, in his own way, whenever he actually admitted a mistake, I noticed that he would then go on to explain why it wasn't really a mistake. <laughs> but uh, so so we kind of closed it out. And you know, I think I think Chris that that hour um, is something that we'll always treasure. Uh, it is. It was a long time ago, but I'm not sure that much has changed. Yeah, I, I, what I was kind of taken, uh, uh, not that, well, I was surprised by how true to his now his media persona he was in person. There didn't seem to be an act. There just was the Donald, and that was what you got. So the guy who is campaigning for president right now, maybe not necessarily at a public rally, but when he's sitting down doing an interview on television. That's the guy in the in his private office. I think so, and in a way, he's become more intense from what little I've seen of him in the current day. Back then, when we met him, he was fifty-three. Right now, he's sixty-nine. I think he's at the peak of, or about to be, he hopes, of what he can accomplish, and so he's very fiery, clearly. So I think he he is the guy we met in '99, but even amped up a little bit more. He's had more business success since then. His his own real estate companies, not so much in the casinos, but yeah, it turns out we should have left that short in because it did expire bankrupt um, a few years later. It did, and and they fired uh, Nicholas Ribas, the CEO, was let go, and then soon after we noticed in the annual report online uh, that Ribas, in a kind of Stalinesque fashion, was taken out of the photo. Just completely, <laughs> they, they photoshopped him out. <laughs> wow, the ultimate you, indignity. You can still see his shoulder. So it's a little rewriting of history, uh, if you could. As he let us out, and Nick Ribas um, was a very nice guy. Uh, I would say he was. He was. The analogy I think I made as we talked about this in front of our employees at the time, just privately, is I think I was saying if Donald is the Wicked Witch of the West, then Nicholas Ribas is a flying monkey. <laughs> I, I do remember. Ribas saying, as he said goodbye to us, you know, I've always said uh, that the greatest asset any business can have is Donald J. Trump, and and now you have met him, and so now you can agree with me. <laughs> so, I mean, Ribas was uh, probably in a difficult position overall. The company was not in good shape, um, but it was a very affable guy, 
and 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 again, very mixed feelings about this. Um, and I, I, we have no political point to make. I appreciate how you open this, Chris, because um, I uh, I stay far out of uh, out of politics. But um, the experience that we had um, was was I think telling, and 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 one that that mixes foolish humor. Uh, and, and a lot of mixed feelings, like a, a CEO and, and a chairman who would invite us in when we're short their company is very impressive. That they told us that the company was going to be okay and then it was still bankrupt a few years later, not so impressive. Um, but, you know, I, I think just I'm glad we had this opportunity to tell the story because it does feel relevant here 16 years later. But it's also just a wonderful walk down memory lane. And I love Jeff's thoughtful summations. And Jeff's memory is much better than mine when he's talking about the experience. So thanks a lot for having us on. Yeah, thank you. I, I will say in the very end, Trump said, call me anytime. If you have any questions, call me anytime. And maybe we should take him up on that offer now. <laughs> I mean, it's anytime. I remember he pointed at his phone. He said, call me. <laughs> yep. I'll answer your questions. So, hey, he's open to disagreement. Thanks for being here, guys. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday.